0: This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This Is A Voice, Series 2, Episode 8. In this episode, we've chosen the best bits from Series 1, Episodes 6, 7, 8 and 9, and Series 2, Episodes 1, 3 and 5. There's a lot to cram in. So let's get straight on with Series 1, Episode 6, The Singer in the Room. Gillianne and I talk about industry sounds, why my belt isn't your belt, and at what point a singer needs to be fixed in their technique. And we answer Joanna's great question about students and when do you give up?
1: Can we talk a little bit about sound outcome? Because we singers are, as I said before, auditory and kinesthetic beings, it's inevitable that we are going to be listening for sound and listening to sound. Yes. And I think the trap that so many of us fall into is that we hear our student or our client not making the sound that we want. I mean, that's what we work with. I mean, we look at the singer as well, obviously, Mm -hmm. and we should be listening to what the singer themselves wants to achieve. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we are working with sound. Mm -hmm. We haven't got a keyboard in front of us haven't got a violin in our hands, Mm. we're listening to the sound. And it's very easy for us to be sound outcome driven.
0: There is, if you like, there is, um, because I'm just thinking of industry sounds. People talk about industry Mm. sounds all the time. And the musical theatre world is rife with, I must sing in the industry sound. And can I just say, categorically, there is not an industry sound. There's about 300 of them, so take your pick. Um, where I think you, where I think you do need to go is watch the context? I'm back on context again, as mm-hmm. I often am, mm-hmm. um, because if you are singing something, let's take the classical world, and you're singing a Richard Strauss opera, there is a hefty orchestra going scraping and banging in front of you, going full blast. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that because I'm an instrumentalist. Um, And therefore, there is a certain texture of sound that you need to get through without microphone. Mm -hmm. So if you like whatever your, quotes industry sound is, it's got to be of the type that will cut through or get across that sound. Mm -hmm. And you could say the same thing in any industry, that there is a certain sort of catalogue of sounds. Yes, I think that that's fair. That match. Yes. I think where mm. it gets really interesting, and in, in musical theatre, although everybody is miked to the hilt now, um, there are cert- the thing about musical theatre is that because the focus is the words, the lyrics, the story, um, the character, the moment-by-moment moment, uh, emotions... It's almost, we've got more leeway in a way because if as long as that sound sounds like that character having that emotion, you can get away with it. So I think, you know, we must have shed loads of twang and we must have this. Or we must must belt this note. We must belt this note. Mm. It's like, uh, excuse me, have you listened to 15 performances of the same song and you will hear 15 different versions? They don't all sound the same. Well,
1: not only that, but my belt isn't your belt
0: no, quite isn't, right.
1: Isn't Adina Menzel's belt?
0: No, my, my belt would sound very odd if it was your belt.
1: <laughs> I think this is really, really important because just as you said, Jeremy, oh, I'm on a hobby horse here. <laughs> um, uh, we, we have industry sounds and we have them in commercial music as well, although there's much more leeway for individuality there. Uh, we are looking for certain kind of sound outcomes because they are the expectations of the genre.
0: We're looking for sound catalogues, not sound outcomes.
1: Yes, yes, good. Thank I'm glad you. you corrected me on that one. Yes. Um So what's important is that you customize that for the individual singer. Yes. Just like I did when I was modeling for that singer, because her A4 in chess mechanism wasn't the same as my A4 in chess mechanism. Neither, by the way, was her F5 when she sang something classical. It was very different. The color of it was different from mine. And I think that, you know, whatever perhaps, you know, system we use, if we, if we use methods, because methods give us structure, and are therefore very useful to some people. Whatever system of um sound analysis that we use, we need to have that awareness of that you could take six singers of the same voice category in the same age, singing the same phrase, they're not going to sound the same. And hallelujah, they're not going to sound the yeah. same.
0: yeah. I mean that's part of the joy of performing, and and performers is that you know you bring you to the room, and we're back on singer in the room again. Mm-hmm. I had literally just had a thought, which is about different genres of music, and I'm going to I'm going to look at um, classical, particularly operatic musical theatre, and almost all contemporary commercial. Okay. Cool. Oh. So let's go here. Have we got just, all day? Let's just explore this thought, and it is about when does the singer need to be quotes. Fixed in a genre and when don't they? And this is to do with training. So if you look at the training for um, a classical, particularly operatic singer, that training period is long mm. because this is all about here are the, here are the sounds that you need to make. Um, they are absolutely specific. They're very finely balanced. A lot of the training is about getting that very, very fine control within this catalogue of sounds. And it
1: also goes, um, you know, it, it usually starts, um, in the mid teens in in the yeah. life cycle yeah. and the voice isn't really maturing until the mid 20s yeah. and that's another reason why it takes a long time i yes. think yes
0: yes and also of course it's acoustic you go to musical theatre, and what you're, what the musical theatre casting directors are looking for is the character making that particular set of sounds within this genre. And musical theatre is genre eclectic, mm-hmm. so it will grab any genre that's going on at the moment and then write a musical on it. Mm-hmm. And usually you can have several different genres within the same musical. Mm-hmm. So if you like, there's a shorter period of training where you have to make these sounds, and then there's more development about Character, mm-hmm. and therefore, there's more likely that it it is not how you sound; it's how your character sounds. And since in every musical you are playing a different character, there's more leeway, there's mm-hmm. more development. Mm-hmm. Now go to CCM, right? CCM is fascinating. Commercial, singing. commercial, contemporary commercial music in almost every genre. This is really fascinating because if you like the the training period can be zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get people just walking onto a stage, picking up a microphone and creating sound. Um, so although, thankfully, there are now, because uh, also CCM is about longevity mm. rather than the one hit wonder. What I think is really fascinating is that there is a very early and major self-development period.
1: Because it's about the individuality. It is
0: about the individual person, the individual sound, Mm. the individual style. And a lot of the early training is about finding your own voice, finding your own Mm. style, finding your own niche, your own genre. What then gets fascinating is you find your genre, you record something, you have a hit with it, you're pretty much then stuck with that genre mm-hmm. because that mm. audience loves you singing that mm-hmm. thing. Mm. And it's a brave performer who then completely changes the genre because you will lose the audience that you've just gained.
1: It also depends on your contract. Yep. Mm-hmm. So
0: isn't that interesting that the fixed area in the training comes at dif- or, in, or in the, the, the performer's life comes at different points?
1: Mm. Interesting. I literally just
0: came up mm-hmm. with that. So I hope you agree with that. If you don't, mm. just make some notes. Let us know.
1: Okay. Yes. Phew. Let's have a listen to the other question, shall we?
0: So this is...
1: Hi, Gillian and Jeremy. I'm absolutely loving this podcast. So my question is, if you have a student who you've worked with and they have aspirated, phonated, resonated, articulated, intonated, even intimated, but you know what? They still just don't sound great. At what point do you call it a day?
0: It's oh a, my lord. Such a great question.
1: That is a corker of a question. When
0: do you actually give up? <laughs> okay. You,
1: I think it's really important for you as a teacher to know that there are certain goals that you will have and I think that's okay. It's okay for you to have those goals because maybe you're working within a particular framework uh of uh you know, you, you, perhaps you run training courses, perhaps you put on musicals or something like that. Perhaps you don't like working with hobby singers. Mm. You know, as a teacher, recognise that because it could be that the student continues to enjoy their sessions, but they are not reaching the goals that you want for them.
0: <laughs> I think that they're not reaching the goals that you want they might be reaching the goals that they want.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I have advised teachers in this situation mm. where they've been working with a student who just wants to sing songs. Mm. And the teacher, in fact, doesn't really enjoy that. Well, this is when you find a colleague who will be perfect for that student and you discuss with them moving, moving them on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because... You're not. You're going to cease to get joy out of your teaching, which means you won't be doing it as well as you could. It also means you're, to an extent, maybe you're wasting your skills. So it is okay for us as teachers to have ideal clients that we want to work with. There is always another teacher who will be the best teacher for that client. I think, Don't yeah. be afraid to, to move them on.
0: I want I want to break down because I want to break some some of that down because there is some stuff in the middle. I think Mm. you've sort of gone to the end end result. Yeah. Um, The first thing I want to say is, what is your job as a teacher? Mm. And in fact, as a teacher, you will have several jobs, and they may they may you may hit all of them in one client. It's actually unlikely. Um, but for instance, your job may be to um, help them improve. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. It may be that you are a pair of educated ears to allow them to sing to. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That may be enough. That may be all they want. Um, and maybe it's a combination of the two. Maybe, you know, they, they just want to sing to you and then you go, well, maybe you could improve this and they try it again and they either do or they don't. But, you know, if you like, your main job in that circumstance is to be, is to hold the space for them to sing. And that could be the only thing that they want from a singing teacher. And where Gillian went is, um, you know, you may not want to do that. You may want to work with people who are more motivated and therefore you pass them on. And I'm going, yes, that is the case. But there may be a case where you go, actually, if my job is to hold the space for them to experience singing and that's all they want, I'm being successful in my job. Mm-hmm. So in fact, my goal for them is not their goal. And that then becomes a, a decision about whether you want to support them in what they want to do, which is simply to sing in front of somebody who understands. Mm. Um, or even just to release some emotion when they open their mouths, which they may not have any other opportunity mm-hmm. to do. And
1: to experience music. Yeah. And, and maybe, um, I'm really glad you've made those points actually. Maybe what you could also do if you have two or three people
0: in that together. situation is bring, bring them, together. them together.
1: And we've, we've certainly advised teachers to do that we because have. you know what? Those students then improve. Yes. They have more fun. Uh, you possibly earn more money per hour.
0: Yes, that's always good.
1: Yeah. And, um, they get that, that vehicle that they need.
0: So, um, in a way, we've sort of split off into two different answers mm. to Joanna's question. Um, which is one is if you really feel that you are not getting enough to benefit yourself Mm -hmm. from this student. It means Mm -hmm. that you and the student may not be a good match, in which case you look around for somebody nearby Mm -hmm. who who is going to be a better match. And in that circumstance that I've described, which is people want to sing to educated ears, one of the things that you can do is hand them to a vocal coach, Mm -hmm. an accompanist, somebody Mm -hmm. who can play for them. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily know as much uh, vocal technique as you do, but since that situation isn't really required, Mm -hmm. they might do better with a pianist who will or, just play songs, or someone who songs. holds
1: karaoke yeah. nights. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's that's strand one. Mm. Strand two is actually to look at your own goals for the the students that you've got and decide whether they're appropriate mm. or not. And some of them may be appropriate, but it may be that it's on a longer term basis mm-hmm. than you think. So they may be just very slow in absorbing stuff. they may mm-hmm. may take them a long time to absorb stuff. And you're going, well, we did that last week. You should have got that by now. And it may take them a month or two months to get to the point where they go, oh, I understand what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And there's a little side issue here, which is if your student doesn't get it, consider that you have explained it in a way that doesn't work for mm-hmm. them. So explain it in a different way.
1: And I think there are sometimes blocks that a student can have um, I'm digressing slightly here, but I can recall when...
0: This this is the This Is A Voice podcast. We digress all the time.
1: When I was teaching at the East 15 Acting School and and working in groups, you know, that there were some singers there who who were so scared of singing that they could hardly do anything. And I would work with them for a year and they'd have a few one-to-ones, 20-minute one-to-ones. And I do recall one particular person who went away and 10 years later, she came on a course of mine that I was running. I was just doing a workshop. And I looked at her and I said, So, when did you learn to sing in tune? And she said, After I left drama school. Whatever you did suddenly embedded, and now
0: I can do it. Mm.
1: And that can happen too.
0: Yes, that's the really long term stuff that sometimes you don't even realize is happening. Mm. That's very nice. So, um, that's a nice
1: moment to end, isn't it? Hopefully,
0: China, that you know, we've given you comprehensive um, ideas for that Mm. one. I think Mm. it's a really fascinating question because there are sometimes people that I go, we don't work together, we don't Mm. fit, or even, um, you've moved on and I need to move you to somebody else, or I've moved on and I need to move you to somebody Mm. else.
1: You could be making a difference and not know you're making a difference,
0: you could. Episode 7 was the second of our stories behind the stories. We're going behind the scenes on the chapter we wrote for the Oxford Handbook of Singing, my transcriptions of classic recordings, and the sometimes tricky business of collaborative writing. Uh, Okay, so you want to talk about the transcriptions. Yeah, let's
1: do that first. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we got to the stage where we thought, they need to see something on paper. Now, as it happened... Jeremy was doing helping me with some transcriptions for my PhD, or maybe no, it was the other no, way around. No, the
0: PhD came later. Yeah, you, you weren't at that stage yet.
1: I know. We went to Australia. It was our first uh, teaching trip to Australia for Anat and Newsat as the. Um, master, teachers master teachers for that particular particular 2000 year, 2011, year. 2011 yeah. yeah. And we said, we, we've got to make this tangible for people. Mm. So we found two recordings of Amazing Grace. Now these
0: specifically, they were acapella recordings because I yeah. didn't want to have to deal with instrumentals. So we had Jesse Norman singing Amazing Grace, and that was on a French television programme about Martin Luther King. Um, and she just sat in the chair, ha- having been interviewed, and sang "Amazing Grace." Mm. And then there's a really good um, video of Leanne Rhimes singing "Amazing Grace," and she's standing in a church, and mm. it is completely a cappella. Mm. So again, really useful to do. And we have such different performances. Mm. So one is very classical based. There is an an element of. Um, gospel about it. Just in Ormond slumming it. Mostly we're talking classical. And then you have Leanne Rhymes, which is um pop country, mm. essentially. So there's there's two different flavours in there. Mm. And I transcribed them. So um and I think we might be able to put this up somewhere. It's probably I can put it up on the the well, um,
1: I don't see why you shouldn't, you the why you website. shouldn't put the visuals
0: up, yeah, yeah, because it is so amazing, it's so interesting just to see the notes that they were singing, the way that they moved between them. The one thing we didn't do was phonetic transcription, which would have driven me nuts. So, if anybody wants to do a phonetic transcription of either of these recordings, please do, Any please of let you us phonetic know.
1: Phonetic gigs, yes, please, please do. And I think what's nice about this is that it reminds us. That a piece of music on the page is only a guide, and that even a classical singer is lifting that music off the page. And You would be amazed, you will be, how many pitch glides there are, even in Jesse Norman's
0: notes. Yeah, and also which notes you pitch consonants on. I marked those Mm. as well. Mm. Um, and uh, when we got to Leon Rhymes, I was marking. Uh, yodel flips, I was marking creak on sets oh, and offsets, uh, fry on sets, um, I was marking slides and glides, I was marking notes that were in tune, notes that were out of tune. There's one particular thing which is an effect, which is to sing a note slightly flat, mm. uh, to make it sound like it's harder work than it actually is.
1: And also all the little ornaments that she puts in. Yes. <laughs> Masses I, of little, oh, little
0: riffs. I ended up using a little app at the time called The Amazing Slow Downer, mm. Just so that I could slow everything down to walking pace, mm. um, but keep the pitch the same, so I could work out what some of the um, some of the the tiny little demi hemi demi semi quavers mm. are that she was putting in.
1: So, if you haven't seen this chapter, uh, have a look. Yes, once we've got this up on the website. I think you'll find it really enlightening.
0: Yes. So that was. Um, it, I'm not going to say that was fun to write because it was actually very intense and hard work. But um, we're very proud of it. Yeah. And we still use um, things from that book. Yes. Um, I want to talk about this whole business of when you have knowledge, mm. how you then apply it, because knowledge is is utter, basically utterly useless unless it's applied. Mm. So it's taking information that we have. That sounds um, like
1: conversations we had when I was doing my PhD. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> it's, it's when you take what you know and you work it to something or you work it to an audience or you work it to a singer.
1: Yeah. So you have that knowledge. And, you know, I was already doing a PhD uh, when we started Singing Express. So how was I going to really bring (laughs) that knowledge to a level that was going to be communicable to the generalist singing teacher and the primary school I just remember singer. what
0: ended up being my favourite phrase for a couple of years, which is "no, that's PhD speak."
1: Yeah, I got it. For <laughs> you, learned that from Anna. She said, <laughs> "I think, all right, thank you, Jillie, for a PhD moment." Now,
0: yes, now can we make it practical?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um,
0: and in fact, um, we're going to do a podcast in the future where we talk about how we take the A and P, the anatomy and physiology language and information and knowledge that we already have, mm, and mm. how we work it for different audiences because ultimately that's the goal.
1: That is the goal. That's very important, actually.
0: So even writing this stuff, you know, finding our voice was... And oh, by the way, can we just talk collaborative writing? Mm -hmm. Can we talk collaborative writing, Gillian?
1: Can you be nice?
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that Gillian does, we have very different styles of writing because I will sit and I'll write something and I'll be really, really focused on it. And then I'll come out of the room and I go, hey, you know, can I share this? with you when we talk about it. And Julianne is of the opinion that really she doesn't want to share anything at all with me until it's perfect. I
1: have a little nugget.
0: So three months later, would I'm going- I have going, to
1: grow my little seed. Yes. Yeah.
0: Three months later, I'm going, um, would you like to tell me what you're doing? Yeah. It was, it's been a um, a little thing of gentle argument since two, since 1999, in fact. I think we got it right
1: when we wrote This Is A Voice. I think we did yes. much better with that Yes,
0: 2016. That was 16 yeah. years later. 16 years it took us to actually be able to do the process in a way that worked for both of us.
1: Yes. I think you put that really nicely.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, I don't know. What else can we say? I, I don't think... We should talk about the other chapter, except to say that it exists.
0: The other chapter exists. Um, No, I will mention it uh, because this is, in fact, the opening chapter of the book. And it is the anatomy and physiology chapter written for academics.
1: So I just breathed out after finishing my PhD, you know, and guess what? An email comes through from uh, Professor Welch saying, well, um, I need someone to write. No, no, no.
0: What he actually said was... That Basically, that chapter in your PhD, in fact, it was two chapters, wasn't it? No, it
1: was chapter two. Chapter
0: two yeah. was so good that he wanted you just to morph it slightly to, to actually work for the yeah, book. That's yeah. actually... There so was a little
1: moment of pride. Keep doing
0: yourself down.
1: Yes. Um, it's and, extremely
0: uh, good. And if you can get hold of that, it is one of the best chapters I've read. Structure and
1: Function of a Singing Voice. Structure and voice. Function of Singing voice. it's called. Oh, can we just finish off with... Reading the section headings for the Oxford Handbook of Singing because it is that. it is a fabulous resource. And okay, so kudos to Professor Welch, David Howard, and John Nix for this labour of love because it takes a long time. Yeah. So uh, you've got the first section is the anatomy and physiology no. of singing, and
0: bear in mind in each of these sections there are at least four different uh, chapters. Uh, by f- at least eight different contributors. Yes.
1: And my structure and function of singing voice was the first one. So I was the first chapter in the book, which yep. is. I think you're the.
0: You're little moment of, the, of pride. You're one of the few people to have written a chapter by yourself. Yeah,
1: there are a few of us there, I can see. And then uh, the next one is the acoustics of singing. Yep. With lots of lovely contributions there. Um, the psychology of singing. And then the development of singing across the lifespan. Singing Pedagogy, that was our second chapter was in there. The Collective Choral Voice, Wider Benefits of Singing, Singing for Health and Singing in Psychology, and then Singing and Technology.
0: And Future Perspectives, And Future yeah. Perspectives, yeah. yeah. It's such a great book, this. Yeah. I so mean, every time proud. I open it,
1: I find something, oh, that looks so exciting. Yeah,
0: very proud to be part of that. Um, I just want to finish with Why Do We Write Books? because <laughs> i can tell you right now it ain't for it the money ain't
1: for the money oh lord no, i think
0: isn't. i think with one of my books i earned enough to have afternoon tea i don't know who you
1: had afternoon tea at the ritz with. now I, me. I was going to
0: say it was afternoon <laughs> tea at the ritz but then with another book i've earned enough to have afternoon tea at the local pub You just don't make much money from books like this.
1: The reason why you write a book is because it has to be written. You have to share that you have a a need to share some aspect of what it is you do or some aspect of insight that you have, and you want to share it with the world. That's why you do it.
0: In Episode 8, Turning Points, we talk about how we've altered what vocal process does for us over the last 21 years – what it's like to build voice training resources in different formats, and how the biggest turning point of all, the global pandemic, changed the way we teach for good. So vocal process doesn't just cover vocal technique. Mm. It's actually context, it's performance issues, Mm. there's all sorts of stagecraft, there's all sorts of things that we both cover. And I think it's important that because there was always, a—I um, mean, for ages, I was going, I'm not quite sure where my skills fit in with vocal process. Mm. And mm. Um, it was why we wrote successful singing auditions in 2002 together, because it was one of my biggest areas of skill where I go, mm. look, I know how singing auditions work. I have done so many of mm. them. I've coached so many people to be successful in them. All we need to do is get the information out. And you know, Really, that's what Vocal Process has done, because underlying pretty much everything we've done is all we need to do is get the information out. Mm -hmm. And we have always been from the very beginning, pretty much from when we met, it's always been... We have some amazing information. We have some amazing techniques that we've learned, that we understand, that we do. Mm-hmm. And it's been very much about how can we get this out to other people? How can we go public on this? How do we get it out in a format that people how can we do? share, it, how can so we share people it? People
1: can use it and use it for themselves and then pass that on. Do you yeah. know, somebody said something so wonderful to me the other day. Um, I won't say who because I haven't asked permission to use what they said, but... Mm. I think it was along the lines of the work that you do, it's like the um, the pebble in the pond and that it spreads out and out and out via all of us singing teachers. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you, that was one of the most um, precious moments of feedback mm-hmm. that I've ever received. And I, I felt then, you know, that somebody was really getting what what we're doing and because we want to affect that change and, and my feeling certainly now at this point in my um, career as a career teacher is I can make the most difference by working with other teachers mm. I can reach more people that way
0: I think also because I'm I'm so interested in different formats um, it almost doesn't matter what the format is I'll do mm. something with it mm. so when we first started we were doing courses. Um, then we did dVds, then we did uh online downloads we've done books we've done leaflets we've done webinars blogs, blogs. Mm. we've done um another podcast so as far as I'm concerned, whatever the format is, let's use it mm. and so that people have a choice about how they get information from us. Mm. And some of it's free and some of it's paid because mm. um, we have to live.
1: And I will say, you know, a wonderful thing about uh, my husband is that uh, present him with a new format, something he's never done before. You know, he's never made a video, hasn't trained as a videographer. And, oh, I, I'm going to do videos of the voice. And so we had our endoscopic footage. <laughs> and, and then he turns around and creates... A video. You've missed,
0: um, you've missed the bit in the middle, which yeah. is the lot of swearing.
1: Yeah, but
0: a lot. You of turned around
1: and did that. Yeah. So you are very good at thinking out of the box, much better than I am, actually.
0: Uh, it, all the whole thing that drives it is how can we get this information yeah.
1: out? Yeah. How can we share? So let's go back to where we started, which is.
0: Oh, I want to talk about turning points. Yeah. Because before we go to there, Ooh. I want to talk about turning points because. Often, um, with an external turning point, it is a barrier. It's a brick wall. It's mm. a block. It's an accident. Mm. It's a, a dead end. It's a dead end. It's mm. a a traumatic event mm. as well. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say, and I'm really starting to understand this on a much deeper level now, is when you have a traumatic event like that mm. embedded in that traumatic event, is something amazing because it mm. can be. An impetus to get you out of what you're doing mm-hmm. into something new. It can be a really obvious sign to you that what you're doing isn't working, mm-hmm. or it can be if I mean, let's say I mean you know I was I was very successful as a as an audition pianist and a rehearsal pianist, mm-hmm. but it was something that made me when I couldn't play anymore. It made me rethink what I was doing, and I sort of want to highlight that which is somewhere in. Any trauma that you that exists for you, there is something that is very positive, and actually, if you can find it, if you can work it, if you can look for it, it's going to be there.
1: And that's not uttered as some trite truism. Because, <laughs> that's experience. You know, uh, aside from the fact that we're all, you know, faced with the pandemic at the moment, um, each of us has has had those moments. Mm. So. Which again we talked about before, so so
0: bringing us up to date.
1: Yeah, bringing us up to date. Obviously, the global pandemic um, caused many of us to have to make um, a massive turning point. uh, You know, a huge pivot.
0: Uh, And we in webinar one we talked about how we survived lockdown. So there's podcast one. You mean podcast one? Yeah. There you go. I've already got my formats mixed up. Yeah. Podcast one,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, uh, which is who we are and how we survive yes. lockdown. So we we
1: won't we don't need to talk about that again. But what's interesting now for us in the UK, because as lockdown has begun to ease, mm. then we've had to do another flight correction. Because I don't know about others of you out there who are maybe doing offering trainings online, as we've been doing, um, especially for over the last six months. Uh, is that suddenly people are less available mm-hmm. and uh, th- they're starting to go back to work. People are also unsure of how much they they're going to be able to pay for, yeah. uh, because of the. I think there's going to be a global recession as as a result of all of this as well.
0: I think people are zoomed out as well.
1: Yeah, and people get zoomed out, and so one of the things we found that uh, was better for us to do. We are doing. Um, a week three, aren't we, of our online we are. singing week teacher three, training? in fact by starts, special request,
0: starts this week. Yeah, invitation starts on Friday. only.
1: Yeah, we're psyching ourselves up nicely for that, uh, which is going to be brilliant. Uh, one of the things we found is that um, we're doing these pop up Zooms, yes, which is a, a two hour Zoom training pop-up session, pop up workshops, pop up workshops. Yes, that's the one, yeah. And we did our first one last Friday, didn't we? We did our
0: first one, which was... On our favourite topic? uh, Registers! Mechanisms! M1 and M2.
1: And uh, these um, pop-up workshops are very practice-based, aren't they?
0: The interesting thing about... I mean, the first sentence that we said when we started the M1, M2 workshop was, hey, look, no PowerPoint. Mm. Uh, It was entirely practical. Um, It was two hours uh, online and... um, the pop-ups that we've got organised, we've got um, M1, M2, which is registers, and which is a completely practical version mm-hmm. of what are registers, how do you find them, what are they, what are they in men's voices, what are they in women's voices, how do you teach them, what do they feel like in your own yeah. voice, what are the variations of have tasks to, to do. Yes.
1: Uh, also, we've got our trained teachers who act as moderators so that people can work in small groups. The, yeah, yeah, you, you get actually get to, get to try,
0: try everything out. What is interesting about the pop-ups that we've got planned, we've got one, uh, the M1, M2, workshop. We've got um, one planned on belting and power sounds. Um, we've got various ones planned and some of them are going to be in-house. So they're only for the people who have already done at least one three-day training with us. So
1: they can work more in-depth on things they've already learned.
0: To be honest, that's really practical for us because mm-hmm. we know that if people have worked with us on at least one three-day training, that we don't have to explain where we're coming from mm-hmm. and what, or What you know, you don't have to spend an hour.
1: It would be an hour.
0: It would be an hour mm-hmm. um, explaining why this is M1 and why this is M2. They already know that, mm-hmm. so we can get straight on with the practical.
1: Mm-hmm. And why it matters.
0: Having said that, we are going to we are planning to do an M1, M2 workshop that is open okay open to everybody and we're gonna make it slightly longer so that we can put that stuff
1: mm-hmm. in. Uh, so
0: some of them are, are in-house and some of them are public.
1: Yeah and also we haven't we haven't set dates for these but we want to do some masterclasses because one of the things we have been doing in the online singing teacher training is um Masterclasses, yes,
0: live masterclasses with with the, the with teachers, the teachers, love teachers them and
1: students, the students love them. So we, we bring them online yeah. and we work with them. And so far, so good. It's worked really well. Yes, and we want to do more of that.
0: In fact, we're doing another online masterclass. Yeah, we've got on four, four singers Friday.
1: Friday and Saturday. Friday
0: and Saturday, yeah. And that's part of week three. Yes,
1: good. Anything else you want to say about turning points? Because I think. I I think
0: we're probably done. That's everything that I wanted to say. I think one of the the fascinating things about turning points is listening. Um, Mm. So sometimes you have to listen to what's going on around in the world, Mm. around you, Mm. um, uh, a.k.a lockdown. Mm. Um, sometimes you have to listen to the voice inside you going, I'm not comfortable with this. You know, there must be something different I can do. And by the way, I have come to the conclusion over the years that there is always something different that you can do. It's just a question of deciding mm. and finding it.
1: And if, it, if it's a health event, yeah, like, you know, your, um, my voice problem, um, yeah. the heart event that I had in December, yes. you have to look at that and go, okay, um, what can I change about my life that will make it easier for me to manage with this, to um, keep myself enjoying doing the things that I do without overloading?
0: I think there's a there's a viewpoint, there's a mentality that says mm-hmm. um, some something traumatic like that happens, and you look at it and you go, right, this is now part of my life today.
1: No, oh, you're much better than I am at doing that. I'm I'm good <laughs> at doing
0: that. Um, because it's happened so often. Mm. Um, but the, the, And the mentality is, this is now part of my life today. What about my life has to change to to accommodate and incorporate that? Mm. It may not be part of my life in a week's time, but today it's mm. here and today I'm dealing with it. You're very
1: good. You do that instantly. I will kick and scream all the way until I get to a point where I go, <laughs> yes. oh, okay then.
0: It's true. <laughs> yeah.
1: And on that note... <laughs>
0: In episode nine, Making It Work, we're sharing the two things that help us create new content and resources for entirely different audiences. Context and purpose.
1: And, and so what we were thinking about in a way, and what we wanted to talk about today, was how how is it that we deliver the information about the voice uh, and voices that work in so many different ways and for different audiences yeah. and for audiences at different levels. Yes. And I'm using the word audience um, intentionally here yeah. because when you're writing for someone, when you're preparing a workshop for someone, when you're writing a lesson plan, you're creating a course, it is an audience that you're working with.
0: Well, in, to, order, to, in order for something like that to be successful – Um, Well, actually, you can just, you know, basically stand up there and say anything you want. Um, In order for it to be successful, you have to understand your audience and you have to understand who it is that you're writing or creating for.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why in an earlier podcast, we talked about the singer in the room. Yes. Obviously, the singer isn't an audience in that sense, but um, they are an individual and that when when you're working with them, the, the lesson that you give must be taking that individuality into account. So I would say one thing, two things actually, and they're related that we use in our creativity is we think about context
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we think about purpose. And actually that's quite important because often what will happen when I'm creating is I'll have a germ of an idea Hmm. and i'll come to jeremy and i'll say oh i've had an idea and you know
0: now be be fair you come to me and you're going we're doing this and i'm going what
1: and he'll say what's the purpose
0: purpose
1: Uh, and uh, that is a nice bit of creative sparking that goes on between us yes um sometimes a little bit more than a spark (laughs) but actually you do need to know what the purpose is you know um Who is it that you want to connect with? Who is it you're communicating with? Um, What is it that you think they need? Yes. And what's the best way of helping them to understand. So obviously, if you're working with a bunch of school kids, it's going to be very different from a bunch of um, avocational singers who are uh, maybe high up in their own professional field and different, again, um, delivering information about voice skills to speech and language therapists.
0: Yes. Well, actually, um, if you just take singers and you look at level and age, and when we talk about age, we're not necessarily talking about physical age. We're also talking about experience age. Mm. So you can have some 10-year-olds who are already leads in the West End. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. are extremely experienced singers, even though they are only 10 years old. Um, and you can have some 50-year-old adults who are in- inexperienced singers. Therefore, they have chronological mm. age, but not experience age.
1: So if you are putting something together, either you know in, in a more formalised business context, or you're creating a, a product... Or an event. Think about the context and purpose. I think that's really important. So
0: Context is everything. Yeah. I so mean, so you understand your
1: audience and how you're going to connect with them.
0: Context is everything because everybody has information. Everybody has knowledge. But when you share that knowledge and you don't, actually put it into the context that you are giving it into, if you like. It's
1: got to be in a framework. It's, a frame it's got work. to be, you know, there has there has to be a frame of reference.
0: I think what's interesting about all the stuff that we've done, because obviously we've done books, courses, lesson plans, I mean, all sorts of things. Mm. Each one, and I love this, and I know I said this in the last podcast, mm um give me a format and i will work out how to how to make it work mm. um it's one of my things you really do yeah mm. and i i like that because each format has something very different that it has to give and if you look for the format and its strengths mm. that's when that format becomes successful so when we're writing you have a format that is word only now word really creates imagination You take something off the page and you can imagine it, you can see it, you can hear it, you can feel it, you can do all sorts of things with it. And it's often why when a really good book is made into a film, the film is very different. First of all, you are having to identify immediately Mm. um, how somebody looks, how somebody moves, what the setting is, what the costumes are, whereas you do that in your imagination uh, when you're reading. And secondly, your idea of something, you also have to edit in a film, some things that you don't edit in a book. Mm. So lots of book is about description, and that description can be very specific and be very precise, can be very elaborate. And yet on film, you get instant hit. So you get everything in that description in one frame. And you've either got to get it quotes mm. right or you go off somewhere else. I was only watching last night on YouTube a thing about a historical costume, that how many films get historical costume approximately right, but then they go, oh, well, this is for modern audience sensibilities, therefore those wigs can't look that ridiculous, even though they did look that ridiculous in that period. Well, that's a
1: frame of reference.
0: It's a frame of reference. And when you go into a different format, you have a completely different frame of reference. Mm. In 2021, we started Series 2 with What's in Your Mug? Gillian explains what sparked the idea, and I describe two staples of every course we teach, the Wow Card and the Lionel Card. Hello and welcome to This is a Voice, Series 2, Episode 1. I'm Jeremy Fisher.
1: And I'm Dr Gillian Kayes. Hello, 2021.
0: Yeah, I can confidently announce that 2021 is going to be the best year since 2020. I think that's pretty okay.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a given. We can rely on that for sure.
0: Yep. What have we got?
1: Do you know what? I want us to talk about what's in our mugs.
0: What's in your mug? What is in.
1: It's a mug. i tell you why. Um, You know, I'm following uh, some interesting uh, medics who are using social media to impact us on Instagram. And there was a lovely post recently about a mug and how this particular doctor found happiness in the mug. And this is a guy, you know, who's working in London. So he's under serious pressure Mm. and Jeremy and I had this conversation about mugs this morning.
0: We we had, um, we've actually had to um, describe our mugs and what's in them. At the moment, I am holding a see through glass, very large glass mug, uh, which has my tea in it. And I always drink the same tea. This is um, black tea. It's usually salon, but at the moment I am on decaf uh, with half a sugar in it, and I like weak black, slightly sweet. There you go.
1: This is mine. Oh, hang
0: on. No, I've got some more. I've got two. No, before you do yours. okay. Because the funny thing is, I don't always drink out of the same mug. I have a set of them and it just depends on how I feel.
1: He's different than me.
0: I have. And this one, this is beautiful. This is a Chinese mug, um, which was actually a present from a, a mutual client of ours. And I have had this for... Oh, longer than we've been married. More than 20 years. And it's lovely. It's got lots of red, um little raised relief on it. And it's got a lid, which is why I really love it because it's big enough for my tea. Because I like to drink a lot of tea. And the mug, the lid keeps everything hot in the mug.
1: You take ages to drink your tea. That's why you need that lid.
0: Actually, it depends how hot it is. I, I like it really hot, mm. which is why I like the, the lid. Okay, and then the third one is a little mug with a picture of Lionel Richie on it. And hello, is it tea you're looking for? And this was actually bought for me um, after we, I'll tell you the story about how Lionel came to be part of our courses. Um, yeah, we've we got,
1: got a card.
0: We have got a card. Mm. Um, I, I was looking for something that would give us feedback from people in the room. And this was when we were still doing live courses, which mm. is, oh, gosh, 10, 12, 13, 14... 15.
1: Oh, we've been doing live courses for decades. We've actually been
0: doing live courses for mm. over 20 years. But the
1: wow cards came in about 11 years ago. Right.
0: So I wanted something that, where the punters, the, the people that we were teaching, could give us some feedback without actually interrupting any thought processes. And I came, oh, oh, I know, I'll do a wow card. So I printed them out, a wow card. And it's a the word wow with a big orange sun all around it. And this was great because what we say to our people is, if you suddenly have one of those aha moments where mm. the penny drops flash us the wear card so that we know something important has happened for you
1: so it's the light bulb moment isn't yep. it
0: yeah and if you've had if you hear somebody else saying or doing something amazing flash them the wear card so that they know that something amazing has just happened and i was looking at this wear card and i was thinking well there's got to be something else as well so i was looking at the possibility of somebody flashing us a card that would let us know that they didn't get what we were talking about. Mm. So I came up with Lionel and a Lionel is there and all you have to do is hold up the, the wow card and go Hello uh, that basically tells us that you're not quite sure what's going on, and then we will reword or we'll rework uh, to make sure that you do get it.
1: Now, we had no idea that these Lionel mugs existed. We there didn't. are Lionel teapots and Lionel mugs.
0: And in fact, the, one of the groups that I was working with, well, Anne bought me this, our accredited trainer, Anne Leatherland. Associate. Hi, Anne. She's our uh, she, associate yeah, trainer She's our associate trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne bought me this one, uh, which is beautiful Little Bone China mug with Lionel on it. And then one of the groups that we were working with clubbed together and got me the little teapot and the cup that stands on... No, the teapot stands on the cup. Mm. And that's one as well. So I actually have two sets. And it's
1: custom made. And what's interesting, actually, about these wild cards is that... They have been used and used yes. and used on yes. our online courses. Yes. In fact, uh, in more than one case, I think that they were probably used as um, an art project for home <laughs> learning for some of the kids. Yes. So we had these amazing wow cards being sort of flashed up. Yeah, um, it, it's brilliant.
0: And it's if, you, uh, really if you're seeing any, if you see any of our social media, you'll probably see photographs of people on calls with the wow card mm. somewhere. Mm. Okay, Gillian, yours so are That's mine. That's
1: what's in that mug, right? Right, so mine is a posh mug. It's a posh one. I, yeah, and unlike Jeremy, if I'm having a brew, if I'm having a cup of tea, it goes in this. I don't really like to have my tea in any other cup.
0: It's absolutely right.
1: But then the irony of this, by the way, this is a, a Villaroy and Bosch cup that I bought.
0: It's the naive design. Yeah.
1: 35 years ago at a sale in Paris, and I was thrilled to bits. I bought four of them, I think. It should have a saucer. I think this is a breakfast coffee cup officially, so I'm totally misusing it. But, you know, I, I like a decent cup of tea. I like a good amount. For some reason, I prefer it without the saucer. Don't ask me why, So, but I do.
0: Gillian drinks strong builder's tea, so um, very strong tea with a tiny bit of milk.
1: Excuse me. (laughs) I only drink strong builder's tea when I'm not at home. Okay. When I'm at home, I drink posh tea. Okay. So I I drink leaf tea because I consider that leaf tea is superior. So what are
0: you drinking at the moment?
1: What I'm drinking at the moment is a blend called... The Queen's blend?
0: Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs>
1: You didn't even know that. I haven't even told you. Which is made by, um, it's put together by Cup of Tea limited.co.uk And we are not being sponsored by them. We're not by sponsored them.
0: by them. We'd love to be, but we are absolutely not sponsored Actually, by them. We drink a lot.
1: they're a fabulous tea company. So it's a blend of Assam and probably Darjeeling and other lighter teas. And it's really delicious. Yeah. It's a brilliant breakfast cuppa.
0: Now, you have to tell me what came up in the conversation the about this mug. Because this was news to me too.
1: Right. Um, I decided that I wanted to have this in my coffin when I am <laughs> cremated. And I said to Jeremy, let, let, let's have it in. You know, it can, I can put my hands around it or something like that. Because but- it's, it's And because this mug has already lasted 35 years. And the brilliant thing about it, because it's a very good quality um, porcelain mug, teacup, is that it will probably outlive me if I don't drop it on the floor. And for some reason, it kind of represents something about the meanness of me and my legacy. And actually, it was a really happy thought, wasn't it? It was. Mm. I just got
0: to remember not to drop you on the floor.
1: So happiness in a mug yeah. says something about me and what. Might be my legacy, and I don't know if you want to go there yet. I was going to say, though, no,
0: I'm fine to go with that. It's just that's that was quite a. It's quite a jump from hello, what's in your tea? To let's talk about death. Um, but it is well, so interesting. We have interesting. To goodbye
1: to 2020. <laughs>
0: 2020 has been so weird, and I'm sure lots and lots of people are saying this, but it is odd. I mean, it's it's about what I, what 2020 actually gave us was the opportunity mm. to stop and take stock. However, you do that. And it was certainly what we we were already doing it sort of at the end of 2019 into 2020. We'd already started to take stock about what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go and how life had been so far and how we want to change it. Mm. And then um the pandemic hit. And so it's just, it was more, it was even more of that.
1: And I think what's interesting about 2021 is that, as we know, it's not over yet. Mm. But we've been contacted by a lot of people who are saying, I really need to reflect now on mm. where I want to go next. So that they're, they're reviewing, if you like, their purpose. And purpose is one of the things that brings us satisfaction and happiness. Mm. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And when we talk about some of the podcasts that we listen to, mm. uh, I might ref- uh, back refer to that.
0: I think the whole business of purpose is... So purpose, if you like, um, okay, we're going into the biggest question, which is why are we here? And we were, we started talking about to legacy. Tea, to evidently. drink tea, To drink tea and put the cup in the coffee. apparently. <laughs> um, but we were talking about legacy and what legacy means to people. And also, mm. if you decide that you're going to have a legacy, because everybody does, one of the things that I think is so extraordinary, um, and I've read this somewhere, and somebody hopefully listening will be able to tell me where I read it. Mm. Um, it's not what you do when you've gone... It's how you've made people feel. Mm. And therefore, that's the memory that you leave. Once yeah. you've um, once you once you're gone, that's what you leave. And we were talking about this, the whole business of legacy and the idea that if you start with that idea, which is what am I going to leave mm. with people, mm. for people?
1: How do I want to impact? How do I want to influence?
0: Yeah. And that mm. then starts to change the way that you I identify yourself. It starts the way you change. It starts to change the way that you you um, lead your life.
1: It, yeah, it also helps you manage your time because you yeah. look at the things that you really want to do that are in line with your purpose, and mm. you go. Some of those things I'm not going to be doing anymore.
0: In series two, episode three, analysing voices and relationships, we share what we listen for, how we use reverse engineering, how to sound the same as someone else without cloning. And I demonstrate one of our signature vocal techniques in a line from South Pacific.
1: I just wanted to pick up on the the reverse engineering thing because we've been talking about you listen to a performance, you reverse engineer it using your auditory skills and your visual skills, if you can see them, And then you work with the singer in the room to Mm. help them find their version of that. We're not talking here about cloning something that somebody else does, because I think that's a big mistake. We lose authenticity. And we might also be trying to make a sound that doesn't work that well in our own voice.
0: I mean, I think this is, I know you're going to go on and say some more, but I think this Mm. is really fascinating. The whole business of cloning somebody else's voice is that they have a particular instrumental setup. Their voice is a particular shape. It's got a particular history. Mm. It's got a particular physiology. And in order to make the same sound that they make, you may be do the same thing. You maybe have to do something different physiologically, to get the same outcome. And in a way, this is the fascination about mm. singing or voice training, is that when you're aiming at something, there are so many different ways. Uh, of. It's like the input, the, what, you, the, what you do, the belief that you have, mm. to get the same outcome, which is the sound that comes out. And I think there's a lot of pedagogy around at the moment that doesn't understand that.
1: It's based on outcome. It's
0: based on outcome. Mm. I've analysed this outcome and it does this, and therefore you must do what I've just said you must do and you will get the outcome. Mm. Oh, you don't get that outcome. Well, then you must be doing it wrong. And it's this idea that you know you do one thing and you get this outcome, and then you do a different thing and you get a completely different outcome. And it isn't the case with singing training or vocal training, mm, voice training.
1: Mm. I want to go to uh, when we have done analyses we, in, yes. in courses yes. where we we listen to a particular singer. Yes. I mean, for instance, on the mastering musical theatre streaming course, which uh, is heading for the library.
0: Yes. It's going to be in the library.
1: We listen. We were um, working with people on the difference between more of a contemporary musical theatre style, for example, a Jason Robert Brown
0: yeah. song,
1: and uh, something from was it Carousel or was it Some Enchanted Evening, South Pacific? Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that we like to do uh, to find not only the style features but what we describe as the signature vocal setting mm. is that we speak in the manner of the singer. And mm. anyone who's worked with us knows this is one of our own signature techniques and it really works very well mm. because it takes people out of their singing brain so that they can start to feel what it is that they're doing differently. Do you want to say a little bit about that from your perspective?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's something that we we did in quite a lot of detail in Mastering Musical Theatre and we mm. listened to, to um, tracks and then, um, analysed what they were doing, put it into the speaking voice, got the audience to do it in their own speaking voice, mm. and then put it back into the singing voice, uh, keeping as much of the speaking voice set up as, as we could. And it sounds odd when you describe it. Mm. So I'll, I'll give you a little demo.
1: Yeah. What are you going to do?
0: Um, I'll do the South Pacific thing. Okay. Some Enchanted evening. No, it wasn't, it, no, it wasn't some Enchanted This, nearly, chanted, was this nearly was mine. Um, what are the lyrics to that? <laughs> now, now I'm alone. Still dreaming of paradise, that'll do. Okay, so if I just say, now, now I'm alone, still dreaming of paradise, now, now I'm alone, still dreaming of paradise, that's pretty much very, very close to my speaking setup mm. normally. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but the speaking, the, the setup that's required for something like South Pacific is very lyric. It's called legit musical theatre. It's It's actually... Operatic ish, classical ish in style, but with some mm. tweaks. And so the requirement is a slightly different sound and a different setup. So if I go into the sort of sound that um, I might use in that, and this isn't my speaking voice, and obviously in the speaking voice it's really quite extreme, but the moment that you sing now, now I'm alone, still dreaming of paradise. Then you hear how that setup actually works in the speaking voice.
1: What lovely vowels you have, dear.
0: Thank you very much. OK, we're almost up to date. In series two, episode five, registers What's in a Name. We tackle one of the biggest cans of worms in vocal training. Vocal registers, M1, M2, chest and head, modal and falsetto. In this excerpt, we talk about mixing. And I demonstrate a whole heap of mixes in M1 and M2, featuring and disguising my primary gear change. Enjoy.
1: Um, I like that you've talked so much about genre here, because I think what it is, you know, in terms of how do we navigate our vocal pitch range And um, is the way that we're doing it suitable for the musical culture that we belong to or the musical culture that we aspire to? That's really what it's all about. That's why we need to
0: think about it. Mm.
1: Otherwise, we wouldn't.
0: Mm.
1: Should we talk about mixing?
0: (laughs) Shall we talk about mixing? (laughs) Is this mixing with a capital M? Mm.
1: Well... Let, let me put it this way and as another story. Do you remember going to um, ICVT in 2017? Yeah. And that was the first time that we met Dr. Trenise Robinson. Yes. And she was presenting some of the outcomes of her um, PhD and the way that she worked to train gospel singers. Very
0: good it was. Hi, Trenise.
1: Almost the first thing that came out of her mouth was, listen, every time we open our mouths to sing, we are mixing. Yes. That was a moment when I shouted in the audience, preach! (laughs) And, you know, I think that's true. This is really important because I think we perceive mix. I think we feel it as a mix. And I'm going to say this as a singer and a singing teacher. We feel like we're mixing something. So we get that sensory feedback that it feels in between. Let's say we feel our chest voice has been more heavy and our um, head voice or falsetto as being more light, we feel there's something going on in between, and we call that mixing. And then acoustically, maybe somebody can't hear the difference between your mechanism one and mechanism two, or or they can't hear that handover because it's so smooth. Mm -hmm. And then people talk about that as being a mix. Mm. And I think... Another thing that happens because of the use of the word mix, particularly if it has a capital M, is that sometimes it's purported to be safer and that you must learn to mix instead of using your mechanism one. Mm. And that's actually to do with how much pressure and volume you use with your mechanism one. I'm I'm going to quote another colleague, actually, uh, Jeannie Lavetri. Jeannie, hello. I love the way that you work on this particular topic and the way that you teach people to navigate between M1 and M2. You wrote a long time ago about just as a female can sing very loudly in her head voice, she can also sing very softly in her chest voice. She yep. does not have to do it loud. Nope. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, people say, well, that must be a mix. Mm. Jeremy, do you want to do some demos of uh, singing in a quieter, Okay. mechanism one. It just might be interesting for people to hear.
0: Um, Okay, let me do... I'll do um, a five-note scale and I'll probably move around in pitch as well because there's quite a lot to show (laughs) when you're you're talking about this subject. Um, Let me do... (laughs) That. That'll do. Okay, so if we go that's something slightly more classical, slightly darker... (laughs) I can tell you what that feels like. It feels like the top note flies off somewhere. Now, that's right on my gear change, okay? If I take away some of that darkness and some of the sort of down feel... It sort of feels slightly like it's more in the same place. If I take off even more... feels identical. Now, I'm going to back off the volume a little bit. (laughs) Much gentler, I am still in M1, but there are some women who would hear that and go and say that I was in falsetto.
1: We find that happens quite a lot in yeah. our teaching, don't we? Yeah. Um, that uh, the, th- the final one would be identified as a head voice.
0: Now, let me go up a little. So,
1: can I just say, yeah. because you did acoustic changes. Yes. And you also did uh, pressure flow changes.
0: I did, but I didn't do any um, register changes. I didn't do any mode changes.
1: No the, the mechanism change All took in place. M1. All in M1. Okay.
0: So, let me go up a little. Now, this is interesting because that's all in M1 too. Sorry, that's all in M1 as well. <laughs> oh, look, I just did a mix. Um, this is really interesting because that feels very light. I am now well above my primary gear change. That's an F. My primary gear change is around C sharp D. Hmm. So I'm well above that. But because of what I'm doing, I oh, no, this is a register violation, if you like. How very dare you? Yeah, because I'm going above. If I if I don't do anything and I do, um, I actually allow the register change to happen. Mm-hmm. There, that's what happens. Actually, even that one coming down, I still made it happen higher up. Hang on, mm-hmm. that's better. So you can hear that uh, that is a very, very distinct shift from M1 to M2 and back again.
1: It's got a lovely yodel flip, two yodel flips, in fact.
0: Yeah, and if I slow that down, you'll hear that the yodel goes in different directions depending on what, what direction I'm going in. Ah! Uh... But I can disguise it. So I could do the one I started with, which is to go, to take the M1 up higher, more easily, less breath pressure. Um, I'm hardly doing anything else, really. I'm just backing off the pressure a bit. Uh, all M1. And now if I do the opposite, which is to go into M2, but disguise it a bit better. Ah. Uh, I was in M243 of those notes.
1: And I'm sitting next to him. Yeah. And I couldn't really hear it, but he could feel it.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely, definitely.
1: So if you're listening to this, it would be really interesting to know who heard it. Yes. God help the outcast hungry from
0: birth. Now, just before we tell you what that is, do you hear M1 or M2? Do you hear head voice? Do you hear chest voice? Do you hear falsetto? Do you, I mean, what label would you put on that? Because I know what label I'd put on it.
1: Do you want me to say? Yeah. That's mechanism one.
0: Mechanism one. Yep. So that's That's my,
1: that's my quiet chest voice. Yes.
0: That's mechanism one on B flat four.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you want to do mechanism two? I'll have a go. Okay.
1: You may need to do some cutting and pasting here. (laughs) From birth.
0: That is all mechanism two. And Gillian is very good at taking a clearer, stronger sound right down to C4. And
1: one of the giveaways for me is that because it's slightly looser and there's less resistance at vocal fold level, some of you will have noticed that I had to take a breath in the middle. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, if I chose to sing that phrase in my mechanism too, I would probably need to take in a larger volume of air so that I could control that flow a bit better if I wanted to do it in one breath.
0: Can you switch between the two <laughs> at some point and make it match?
1: Mm-hmm. God help the outcast, hungry from birth.
0: Very nice.
1: Was it good enough?
0: It was superb, thank you, yes.
1: We didn't rehearse this.
0: No, not at all. Um, this is really interesting because did you hear where Gillian moved from the mechanism two to the mechanism one? It was actually between the two phrases. It was? Yes. We'll, so, let, them,
1: we'll let them respond God to that. God respond the
0: outcast. So she's on F4 there and she does F4 in and M2 and then F4 in M1.
1: Yeah, on Hungry.
0: Yeah. yeah. Excellent.
1: Cool. Well, that was putting our heads above the parapet. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So what's really interesting about mixing is that mixing, first of all, can be done on either an M1 or an M2. And mixing really is acoustic. It's um, resonance plus possibly breath pressure. But what it isn't is vocal folds.
1: And when we're talking about breath pressure, we mean subglottal pressure. And the level of resistance.
0: I think it's also supraglottal pressure. So mm. you've got down downflow as well. Um, and one of the things that we've been talking about is, in a way, this is why classical operatic female singers say that you can't take chest voice high because it will be damaging. And the thing is that given, and we've said this um, somewhere else, given the vocal setup, the resonance shape and the breath pressure and the backflow and the downflow, given all of that setup in order to take your uh, M2 and make it really powerful for operatic singing, you definitely do not want to hold that shape and that breath pressure when you're taking M1 higher. This is it just won't work. It will overload you really, really quickly. Because
1: the subglottal pressure's going up already, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So yes, they're right in that if they want if they want to sing in with their uh, resonance spaces and with their vocal setups in an m1 that goes higher that is not good for them but the interesting thing is commercial contemporary commercial singers and musical theater singers gospel singers you know, folk singers all of these people don't use that particular resonating shape mm. to take an m1 higher they change the shape mm. Mm. and again that was one of the the things that really led me to mixing is not about the vocal folds. Mixing is about the resonating spaces and the breath pressure.
1: Yeah. You know, when people talk to us about mixing, we always say, "Uh, what are you mixing with what? Uh, Can you do it unmixed first? And can you do it mixed? And that's actually quite a useful way to find out what your student is doing or what um, someone's talking about. I just want to clarify, um, because you've talked a lot about um, backflow and back pressure. Mm -hmm. We have um, aerodynamic Back pressure, mm-hmm. and we also have um, acoustic downstream effects, don't we? Because the sound is actually moving back and forth. The sound wave is moving back and forth in the vocal tract, and that can um, be enormously helpful in helping us to disguise register. So um, we acknowledge that register shifts are acoustic as
0: well as mechanical yes. events. Are we done on this topic? Well, we're done for the moment. I suspect we that we're could going be to...
1: very, very done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that we might have some comments. So if we do have comments, um two things that you can do. One is just let us know. You can email us info at vocalprocess.co.uk, or preferably you can send us a um, an audio message on speakpipe.com vocalprocess vocal process.
1: Oh yes, yeah. send us your AMAs because wasn't it great that we had that question
0: yes, from on the
1: article that, yes. that really really was the thing that sparked us off to do this particular
0: podcast yes if you think we haven't covered anything send us a speak pipe and Mm. we will do it um on the next podcast if we don't get enough of your comments we won't do it on the next podcast we'll do something else instead Mm. right
1: i think we're done i think
0: we're done thank you very much for listening okay bye This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher.